0: This is a special presentation on General Conference Saturday. Finding peace in the storm. Join us as we look at improvements and changes to Utah's mental health care with Boyd Matheson on KSL News Radio, 102.7 FM and 1160 AM.
1: Thank you for joining us on KSL News Radio for this special General Conference weekend. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News and host of KSL's Inside Sources. For the next hour, we're going to focus on finding peace in the storm, a look at mental health now and in the future. We'll be joined by experts and thought leaders I've had the chance to interview from a wide range of disciplines, including Jane Clayson, former journalist and author of Silent Souls Weeping, Elder J. Devon Cornish, a General Authority 70 from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We'll begin our program, however, with a place of unexpected innovation relating to mental health, the criminal justice system, and the courts. I sat down with Judge Matthew Durant of the Utah Supreme Court for a fascinating look at how the courts are attempting to better help those struggling with mental health issues. Thrilled to have uh, not just with us, but in studio, uh, Utah Supreme Court Justice Matthew Durant. Uh, So let's start with your uh, address to the legislature. Uh, It was interesting in in your remarks up on on Capitol Hill, uh, you you talked about the obituary of your great-grandfather. Uh, and just that uh, he obviously had some challenges. Interesting what they reported in the paper in those days. Uh, but but give us a little backstory there.
2: Yes, uh, he's my favorite ancestor. Um, he uh, was a slight man with a drinking problem, mm-hmm. likely an alcoholic. Yeah. Uh, he was not a churchgoer, mm-hmm. but each Sunday, uh, if it would rain, he'd get up early. So he could stand by the muddy road and carry all the neighborhood kids across to the other side uh. Uh, so they wouldn't get their Sunday best shoes uh, dirty. So that may seem like a small thing, but when I found out about that, I, I thought it was a big thing. Yeah. Uh, the, I, I shared with the legislature that his obituary, which I, I found researching his life, uh, indicated that you know, he died this past Saturday. He was survived by his wife Eliza, and it mentions his kids. And then it says he was prominent in neither the church nor the community, and I thought, wow, they really don't didn't pull any punches in those days with <laughs> yeah. obituaries. Yeah, but it struck me that no, that's not right. He's very prominent to me. Yeah, and he was prominent to Eliza, and he was prominent to all those kids. So I use that story to make the point that uh, we need to remember uh, as uh, governmental leaders that every person is prominent mm. to someone and. Each person matters. Yeah.
1: Uh, uh, I really appreciate you sharing that with us, uh, Justice Durant, because it does and uh, was the perfect springboard into a conversation about those people who are, are prominent uh, in people's lives, uh, not in the press, not in the government, not in politics or business, uh, and especially those who are struggling, those who are addicted, those who are dealing with mental health. Uh, and I think I think that really uh, stilled the chamber that point because suddenly everyone was thinking about who they knew uh, who might be struggling in that case. And then you brought it to, to how you see it. We often look at that circle of what happens when someone gets into trouble and then they're in the courts and then they're off to prison. And, and we often don't really think about how that Im- is impacted, especially by those that have a mental health struggle. Tell us, tell us your thoughts there.
2: Uh, the, the question of mental health in our criminal justice system poses enormous challenges. Um, Jails and prisons have become our de facto mental institutions. They house more people afflicted by mental illness uh, than do our uh, state-supported mental hospitals. Right. And so as a court system, we've tried to address this in a number of ways, mainly by creating uh, mental health courts. So we have 14 mental health courts Mm -hmm. and uh, 14 adult mental health courts and, and three Juvenile mental health courts, uh, where we try to address the particular needs of these individuals. We're interested in a court system, as I mentioned in my speech, to serve as a kind of convener, Mm -hmm. uh, to bring to the table all the many good people. There's so much good work being done in this respect. The legislature has done good work. Counties are doing good work. But some of it may be happening on a piecemeal Mm -hmm. basis. We think that we in the judiciary are uniquely structured. We have the infrastructure to bring people to the table. We're just one stakeholder, but yeah. a significant one. Yeah. But then to allow the different stakeholders to share ideas and maybe most importantly, identify gaps in the system. How can we better address the needs? those mentally ill individuals who enter our criminal justice yeah, system.
1: I, I love the idea of of convening. If you're just joining us, we have uh, Utah Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice uh, Matthew Durant with us in studio today. Talk about convening all of the stakeholders in this, this unique initiative. Uh, give us a little more color to that. What does that look Certainly. like uh, on the different levels, and how can that really help those that are struggling with the, the mental health component?
2: We're going to kick off the event, first of all, with a statewide conference in August, where we hope to bring people in from across the state, different people who are involved in this effort inside and outside the court system, um, as well as bringing national experts to address us. Thereafter, how we envision it working in the different communities throughout the state. Stakeholders can be convened, Mm. maybe with the assistance of a presiding judge right. where they can all sit down together and say, here's what's working, here's what's not working. We just want people to be uh, talking and, and as I mentioned, identifying those gaps in the system where we're not doing as well as we might. Uh,
1: talking about mental health, and, again, a lot of people don't don't make that connection uh, between the courts and the the mental health. We often talk about addiction and some of those problems. Uh, just in our, our final minute here, uh, Justice Durant, if you can maybe give us just one more insight. What should we be thinking about today as citizens? What should we be thinking about in terms of mental health from what you see kind of on the, the back end of the cycle?
2: Well, we certainly should keep in mind that um, treatment can work. Mm. Not to say it works in every instance, but when it comes to substance abuse, substance dependency, when it comes to mental health, uh, treatment is a critically important tool for us in the criminal justice system. So I guess my message would be, don't give up. People (laughs) can change. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And and that is a great message. I think uh, one of your remarks up at the Capitol, uh, you said uh, everyone knows what it's like to to love an addict or to love someone who's dealing with depression or or, uh, mental uh, health challenges of some sort. And and that is an important thing for all of us to keep in mind, to do something today. Uh, We have a lot of people who, uh, if they just got a text message today, or someone put their arm around them today or someone in the judicial system said, "Here, here's some treatment that, that just might give you a, a different kind of chance uh, is so important for all of us. Uh, Chief Justice of the Utah State Supreme Court, Matthew Durant, thank you so much for joining us in studio today. Coming up, we will go from the judiciary bench to the congregational pew. My interview with Elder J. Devin Cornish, a General Authority 70 of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is next on Finding Peace in the Storm, here on KSL News Radio.
0: You can hear Boyd live weekdays 11 till 12 on this same station. Back to Finding Peace in the Storm on KSL News Radio. Welcome back
1: to a general conference weekend special, Finding Peace in the Storm, a look at mental health and wellness. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News and host of KSL's Inside Sources. We'll shift now to the role of faith in mental health in my interview with Elder J. Devin Cornish. Elder Cornish received a Bachelor of Arts in Biology from Johns Hopkins University in 1975 and in 1978 received a Doctor of Medicine also from Johns Hopkins University. He completed his pediatric residency at the Boston Children's Hospital at Harvard University. He also served as Chairman in the Department of Pediatrics in the Emory University School of Medicine. His church service includes being a full-time missionary in the Guatemala El Salvador mission, a bishop stake president, president of the Dominican Republic Santiago mission, and an Area 70. Elder Cornish, thanks for joining us today.
3: It's a pleasure to be with you, Boyd.
1: Well, this is one of those topics, these diseases of despair, the the challenges of of anxiety and depression uh, continue to plague the nation and and plague individuals in our communities. Uh, We often refer to these as getting comfortable with some of the uncomfortable conversations. As, As you've ministered throughout the church, as you've traveled the world, what have you learned about mental health and dealing with some of these diseases? Of despair.
3: First of all, I've learned that disease is no respecter of persons. People become depressed and have mental illness, whether they are rich or poor, whether they live in advanced cultures or in depressed and difficult cultures. People are susceptible to mental and emotional difficulties, whether they have a background of those things in their family or not. So the first message is, this is no respecter of persons. People get these things. I think
1: sometimes we do feel like, what's what's wrong with me? I think people often ask themselves that uh, that very question of, is there something wrong with me? What else have you seen in terms of, how do we come to grips with that? That, hey, it's, it's okay, this is normal, it is no respect for a person.
3: Let me see if I can frame it in a way that is useful to the general thinking. When was the last time you were concerned about the moral soundness, the character strength, the goodness of a person who had diabetes? Were you ever embarrassed to say, Oh, this person with diabetes is my friend. Do you know why you get diabetes? You get diabetes because your pancreas stops making insulin. Well, other organs have biochemical deficiencies. They sometimes don't do what they're supposed to. One of the organs that can do that is your brain. The problem is that if your brain stops making a chemical that transmits feelings, your feeling system may not work right. But now you're depressed For no obvious reason, nothing sad happened. You just have a gloom and a sadness and an inertia around you and people start to treat you differently. They think, what did this person do wrong? What sin did they commit? There must be some defect in that person's character. When in truth, there is no more moral meaning to having depression because your brain doesn't make the right chemicals than there is moral meaning to having diabetes because your pancreas doesn't make the right chemicals. But in our culture, and in fact, across the world, depression, anxiety, emotional problems bear the moral overtone of deficient character. What a tragedy.
1: Yeah, that that feeling of being less than, uh, I think probably adds to that downward spiral as it, uh, as it relates to those feelings of depression, uh, that we do think there's something wrong with us. And for so long, I think the solution has been that people just say, well, you just need to buck up. <laughs> you just need to choose to be happy. You just need to you know, have a positive, positive attitude. Positive mental attitude. <laughs> That's right. But it's more than that, isn't it?
3: Well, it's useful to understand that the, the depression is kind of a spectrum of diseases. Sometimes people are sad because they've been through a sad experience. Your mother died. You lost your job. You became ill. It would be surprising not to be depressed when something depressing happens to you. Some people have this overwhelming depression, as I said, without any obvious cause. And then there are people in between. Mm -hmm. There are people who've in fact had a difficult experience but can't seem to pull out of it. The reason it's important to understand that this is a spectrum of illness is because it helps you understand how to respond. When a person is having difficulty adjusting to a sad experience, encouragement and, in some cases, even professional counseling can be very helpful. Sure. We've often thought in medicine that the people on the other end of the spectrum who have what was been, has been called major depression or depressive disorder do often have a genetic biochemical defect in the way their brain makes and processes chemicals. And we think, well, they don't need counseling. It turns out that both people with this more minor situational depression and people with major biochemical depression benefit from counseling and often from medications. Sometimes the people who have more situational entry into depression may need medications longer than was expected. That's a good thing to do. Sometimes people who have family history, major biochemical depression, get on good medications that work for them get counseling and the counseling is so effective it seems to literally change their brain chemistry and they don't have to stay on medications on a long-term basis. So understanding that depression is a spectrum of problems and that both the emotional support and counseling and in many cases the biochemical readjustments can be helpful in either category.
1: Uh, that, that's such important insight for, for everybody listening today, that, that we do have this spectrum to work from, that there are a wide range of ways to, to address it and engage it. Uh, from from medicines to counseling and everything in between, and looking at it whether that's a, a coming off of a specific episode, as you mentioned, whether that's a, a death or a loss of a job or a loved one or a relationship, uh, and how we really move that forward. Uh, I, I want to shift now. In 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 2016, you delivered a an address in the general conference of of the church. Uh, which has a title that uh, to me is really the theme for our our day today in this discussion around mental health. And that is this, this question, am I good enough? Am I good enough? I, I think we all ask that. Uh, Can I make it? Can I get through this? And so I wanna, I want to talk for a minute about what what drove you to writing and delivering that address? What inspired you? Uh, and then I want to really drill down into what was the, the process of learning for you uh, as you wrote and then delivered that address?
3: You know, it's a wonderful thing when you have an opportunity to interact with the members of the church. When you get into a question and answer, kind of an open conversation setting, and you invite questions, the questions that come are the softball questions. <laughs> Because people don't want to be seen as raising their hands and asking something that might be embarrassing to them. Right. If you ask for written questions, anonymously, sub, anonymously submitted, this question is one of the ones that comes up most frequently. Yes. Am I going to make it? Can I really have hope of happiness in this life and in the afterlife? It's a sad thing that we somehow have a misunderstanding of who God is, how He feels toward us, and what He wants for us. The God of heaven who controls and governs all things everywhere, happens to also be our father in a very personal and intimate way. He wants real happiness, growth, joy, glory for all his children forever. And he knows how to help everybody grow in ways that will allow them to have that. So a sense that I just am not going to make it, it's not going to work for me, is really a misunderstanding of who God is and what he wants for us. If he can create us, he can govern us, and he can bless us, we should have a little more hope. And a little, and a
1: little more confidence in who's, who's in charge, and right? A <laughs>
3: you know, what I've learned from practicing intensive care medicine for so many years is that one of the saddest delusions of this mortal experience is the belief that we're in charge of our lives. Mm. We are not in charge of our lives. We do not control our lives. We are responsible for our lives, but we don't control our lives but God knows how to manage the experiences of our lives in ways that will change and bless us. And rather than worrying about whether I'm good enough, what we should be asking is, am I trying? And I, do I believe that God wants to help me?
1: That's a great, those are great, great questions. And I, I think so often we we forget that, that all we can do is, is all we can do, but all we can do is enough.
3: President Hinckley used to say, and I've heard him say this in person on many occasions, brothers and sisters, all God asks of you is to try, yeah. but you have to really try.
1: Stay with us here on KSL News Radio for this special General Conference Weekend coverage. My interviews with Demma Ollerton, the behavioral health supervisor at University Neuropsychiatric Institute, and journalist and author Jane Clayson is up next.
4: Boyd live weekdays 11 till
0: 12 on this same station. Back to finding peace in the storm on KSL News Radio. Welcome back to finding peace
1: in the storm here on KSL News Radio. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and host of KSL's Inside Sources. Well, we are very pleased today to be joined by Jane Clayson, former journalist and author of Silent Souls Weeping. I know this was a uh, a book that required a great deal of courageous vulnerability even to, to begin it. Tell us about that.
4: I like that phrase, courageous vulnerability. This is not a book I ever expected to write. I had never really experienced depression until it sort of hit me uh, like a freight train. After I had long, difficult journey and had come out of it, I started talking with people and realizing how widespread the problem is, and more importantly, how many people are suffering in silence. Mm-hmm not sharing their experience for a variety of reasons. And I decided that I wanted to do something about that. It is a very vulnerable place to be, to tell your story, but I felt like I could maybe help some people. And so that's why I wrote this book.
1: One of the things that I, I love that you address is we do sort of live in this lonely crowd, especially mm-hmm. with those that are, that are dealing, as you said, silently uh, with this. And whether it's emotional pain or physical pain, uh, there is an element to that kind of suffering that really does isolate you and creates right. all kinds of problems.
4: I mean, if there's anything I've learned over the three years that I worked on this book, interviewing more than 150 people across the country, it is that we must reach out and we must help each other and share our stories because so many people are struggling in silence. I think, to me, the worst part of depression is the isolation that it brings, um, not just from family and friends, but from community, from our church, even from our God. And I think that through the power of story, the dialogue can be opened and renewed and we can have a new level of honesty and authenticity and hope. I heard so many times, I've never talked about this with anyone, or my parents don't even know this, or I can't believe I'm telling you this. So let's shine some light on this. One of the great quotes that I heard from one of the many people that I interviewed for my book was depression thrives in secrecy, but shrinks in empathy. So let's have empathy with each other. Um, let's talk about our short stories, share our experiences so that we can help those that are struggling.
1: I love that, shrinking in empathy. That's uh, that's such a great term. Uh, and, and I think it's part of this idea that we, we have to start getting comfortable having uncomfortable conversations uh, mm-hmm. about a host mm-hmm. of things. As you had the, the chance to interview, again, over 150 people across the country, how were you able to get them to get comfortable Uh, having that uncomfortable conversation.
4: I have been a journalist for 25 years, and when I decided I was going to write this book, I wanted to hear people's experiences. I wanted to hear others. When I would call someone that I didn't know out of the blue and explain to them what my project was and explain to them a little bit of my own experience, I think they heard that what I was doing here was going to be an authentic representation of what depression is. This is not a sugar-coated portrayal of this disease. So I think that they trusted that I had been through it and that I was going to portray their experience in a very authentic manner. You know, it was surprising. I I certainly interviewed people that I know and have known for a long time, but I interviewed many people that I don't know and didn't know. um, And people started calling me in the middle of this project, Boyd, because they had heard that I was working on this and they wanted to share their own experience with me. So that was really striking. And I think, you know, people wanted their difficult experiences to be validated. Mm. They wanted to share it with somebody else so that it could help another who was suffering. So yeah, it was, um, it was an incredible experience actually hearing all of this and I felt tremendous vulnerability and responsibility yeah. um, for the experiences that I heard.
1: When we come back, I will share my thoughts on finding peace in the storm, heeding the call to be still, and changing our perspective on Perspective. Stay with us right here on KSL News Radio.
0: You can hear Boyd live weekdays 11 till 12 on this same station. Back to Finding Peace in the Storm on KSL News Radio.
1: Welcome back to this special General Conference Weekend program, Finding Peace in the Storm. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News and host of KSL's Inside Sources. As we conclude our look at mental health and wellness, I want to share a few thoughts in the context of the current global pandemic. The coronavirus has certainly changed many things for many citizens around the world. But the question remains, did COVID-19 bring a new normal? We have to be careful as it relates to our mental health. Far too often, the term new normal has been improperly invoked. Schools closed and students learning from home? New normal. Restaurants only open for pickup and delivery? New normal. Social distancing. Definitely new normal. Restricted international travel, working from home, no sporting events, concerts, or large gatherings, including general conference. All new normal. It is the phrase that seems to be everywhere around the world. Whenever bad news is delivered or a change in current behavior is required, we simply pause and say, well, this is just the new normal. Are we entering a massive new normal? No, it isn't a new normal. It's just a new now. This isn't to minimize the impact of what is clearly a serious situation. We're experiencing some mighty changes in our daily living. The new now, however, not the new normal, is the right and proper way to minimize the angst, the stress, and the fear of it all. One of the greatest challenges within the current challenges facing America and the entire world is the uncertainty and anxiety that arises in the absence of proper perspective. The new normal... Commentary suggests things will continue the way they are in perpetuity. If you buy into that kind of thinking, you're much more likely to panic instead of prepare, react rather than respond, and be driven by fear instead of by faith. Part of finding peace in the storm is finding a new perspective on perspective. Growing up, I was obsessed with playing basketball, and my goal of all goals was to play at the college level. I practiced more hours than I should have, played more recklessly than was wise, and ultimately got to my senior year in high school with goals still in sight. But as my senior year started to wind down, so did my right shoulder. It got to the point that it would eventually dislocate whenever it wanted to. I went to the doctor to discover that it was in pretty bad shape. The doctor said surgery was required, and then was very honest with me and said, your chances of playing competitive basketball again are slim to none. I was devastated. I was angry. I was frustrated. I went into denial. But the further that went, the worse things got, until finally I just knew I had to have the surgery done. I remember sitting at home one night, and the phone rang. It was Elder Hugh Pinnock of the Quorum of the Seventy, who happened to live in our neighborhood. He asked if I could come over and visit with him at his home. And while I had no idea what Elder Pinnock would want to talk about or why he wanted to talk to me, I agreed and drove over to his place. He met me at the front door, but didn't have his typical Elder Pinnock smiling face and warm handshake. He turned and escorted me back into his library, his den, and we sat down and he told me this story. He said, a long time ago, there was an old man who lived in a tiny village and his only possession, his only form of wealth, his only way to provide for himself was his horse And one night in this village, there was a big storm, lots of thunder and lightning. The horse was spooked, and as it raced about the corral, it broke through one of the gates and ran off into the desert. The next morning, the people of the village were going around assessing the damage from the storm, and when they got to the old man's home, they saw the empty corral and the broken gate, and they said to the old man, "'Oh, this is so awful. This is so terrible. Here, you've lost your horse, your only form of wealth. What an awful, terrible thing.'" But the old man looked at the people and said, no, you don't know this is so bad. You don't know this is an awful or a terrible thing. Well, the days went by and one night the horse returned and brought with it 50 wild horses that had been running with out in the desert. Now the people of the village returned and said, this is so great. This is so wonderful. Now you have all this wealth, all these horses. You'll never have another worry. What a great and wonderful thing. But the old man paused and looked at the people and said, no, you don't know this is so good. You don't know this is a great or a wonderful thing. Well, the old man had a son who was one of the great young warriors in the village. He'd spent a lot of time perfecting his skill with the sword and the sling. But one day as he was out breaking in one of those new horses, he was thrown and his leg was crushed. Never again would he be able to use the skills he had worked so hard to develop. Again, the people of the village came to the old man's place saying, oh, this is so awful. What a tragedy here. This great young warrior is now crippled. What an awful, what a terrible thing. But the old man looked at the people and said,
2: No, you don't know
1: this is a bad thing. You don't know this is awful or terrible. Well, it wasn't many days later that the cry of war was heard throughout the land. The warlords came through the village and gathered all those that were able to fight and led them off to a terrible battle. With that, Elder Pinnock stood up, escorted me out of the house, told me to remember this story. I remember getting in my car, driving home, trying to figure out What was really going on? I was half waiting for Paul Harvey to come on with the rest of the story. But that was the story. I remember clearly after having my surgery as I was in the hospital for a few days and as friends and family and coaches came to visit, they all began the same. Boy, this is so awful and terrible. You've practiced all these years, all those hours. It's over. What an awful, terrible thing. And without even thinking, I was responding, no, you don't know this is so bad. And truly it wasn't. It was during that time of recovery that I had the chance to focus on some things that were far more important than making baskets or winning championships. And the reason I share that is because we have to understand for our mental health that perspective is a choice. Sometimes we need to change our perspective about perspective. And maintaining a proper perspective is a skill to be developed for our mental health. And it's much more than a simple attitude adjustment. Perspective isn't about putting on a fake smile or looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. It is important, however, to remember that in the face of daunting, difficult challenges, we may not know in the beginning if they are good or bad. We'll certainly know that they are hard and tough and difficult, maybe even overwhelming at times. But framing our perspective properly can be a first step to moving forward to a new kind of new now. And remember, you don't know it's so bad. You don't know it's so good. There's an opportunity to be found even in the most difficult of situations. Now, one of my favorite moments in the New Testament is when Christ and his disciples are on the stormy sea. The disciples are frantically racing about, trying to save the ship, trying to control everything, trying to save themselves. Soon they become weary, as we often do, both emotionally and physically. The fatigue was real. And we have to remember that during our difficult days. Chasing, whether that's mental or physical chasing, it often exhausts us and causes us to stress out, give up, or cave in. In the context of the current coronavirus, we see this manifestation in manic buying, massive misinformation sharing on social media, and the hoarding of supplies. It's also seen in irritability, hopelessness, discouragement, and depression. So returning to the lesson from the biblical account, after the disciples had so exhausted themselves through their frantic efforts, Christ arose and simply said, Peace, be still. In this declaration, I have always felt, and am now more convinced than ever, that the Savior Jesus Christ was not speaking to the wind and the waves. He was really speaking to his disciples. He was, in essence, saying, Be still in the new now. It will pass and will journey on. The lesson was to be still in the new now of any current crisis. Living in the new now puts us in control of our emotions and ensures that we focus on the things that we can control and the things that we can do today. So we do know that school will eventually restart. Healthy communities will be restored. Restaurants will open, sporting events, big crowds, missionaries. All of those things will thankfully rise. High fives will return, big hugs will resume, there'll be a new day. So while suffering will be present in what feels like a dark and discouraging international moment, a magnificent, forward-moving morning of stillness, a newfound strength will follow, bringing yet another new now for all of us to embrace and to move forward in. Remember, it is against the laws of nature and nature's God that a storm continue forever. Even the fiercest wind in the most violent storm eventually subsides. Stillness follows, and a moment of calm confidence comes. The most resilient of beings, human beings, adapt and move forward one new now at a time. With a proper perspective on perspective and embracing the new now, we can be still and we can enjoy peace in the storm. Thank you for joining us on KSL News Radio for this General Conference Weekend special. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. As you go out into the world today, please remember to see something that inspires, say something that uplifts, and do something that makes a difference.